Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Daily French Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Lorimer, and I'm joined today by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you? Very well, thank you, Nick. Uh, nice and sunny in the Cape for a change. No rain and wind and storms and all the rest well, of it. It seems like you got all of your rain out of the way uh, <laughs> at the beginning of the week. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, so I think the rain got anyone in Cape Town out of the way. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. And we are also joined by Sarah Gon. Sarah, how are you? Well, we could. We had some nice rain. Was it last night or the night before? I'm losing track. I think the night before. Nice. Little, you know, not Cape Town style. No, exactly. Mm. Uh, it, was, it was very refreshing. I must apologize to listeners if I seem a little bit odd today. Um, I slept and fell down some stairs shortly before the show. And uh, so I'm a little bit... In, in pain, but uh, anyway, the show must go on, as they say. Let us start off with a, a a story we've been talking, I think, quite a lot about recently, and that is the sheer level of the <clears throat> incredible level of violence in KZN against its uh, its its municipal councillors. So uh, the Msumduzi municipality in KZN, which is the one around Peter Maritzburg, is looking at. Uh, reducing the number of attacks on its councillors by perhaps providing them with bodyguards or at least having a security policy uh, which uh, seeks to protect their councillors from being murdered. This comes a month after a, a, a councillor was murdered in the area. Um, uh, councillors from all parties seem very concerned, from the IFP, ANC, uh, DA, etc. Um, currently, only the mayor, the deputy mayor, and the speaker have bodyguard protection, as well as three senior officials in the municipality. Um, all the parties in that municipality seem to be in favor of this. The DA has praised it, the IFP has praised it, the ANC has praised it, saying we really need to do something about this. Uh, Becky Tlele was recently talking about the scale of violence in KZN. He since, said since 2018, um, they had looked into 321 cases of either a murder or attempted murder, um, 77 of intimidation, uh, against um, councillors. Uh, 348 suspects have been charged in 233 cases. Uh, there were 52 murder cases in the last um, five years. Uh, 31 were ANC councillors. 14 were from the IFP. The NFP lost four councillors. The EFF, two, and the ACDP, one. And there were, in total, 103 municipal officers and political office bearers killed in that period. Um, so it's a very serious problem. And I guess the question here, and, and let me start with you, Michael, is we, you know, we often complain about the incredible amounts that particularly cabinet ministers and such spend on bodyguards. And we've seen recently that case, you know, with Paul Mashatila, the deputy president, where the bodyguards were beating up people on the side <laughs> of the road and just acting like thugs. And that's not a new story. Um, but, you know, in the short term, like in these cases in municipalities, one really does have to ask the question, what is government supposed to do? And maybe they should be rolling out more bodyguards. Um, considering the increasing gangsterization, mafiaization of so much of South African politics, at least until the police services are fixed and our political culture has calmed down a bit, maybe we should consider spending more on VIP protection, not for the sake of politicians' egos, which it seems 
to be what it's mostly been used for up till now, but actually for protecting people's lives. What do you make of that? Mm. I mean, I think there is a, an argument or a growing argument that this must be the, at least the short-term rational response to what is becoming a very grave threat. Um, I think, you know, if, if one were to make that argument, I think perhaps the caveat ought to be that the emphasis at the moment appears to be on cabinet ministers who uh, who are, don't really appear to be at that great a risk and have a, a huge sort of security detail with umpteen cars and, and, and all the rest of it. But perhaps some of that spending needs to go down to the level where the risk is is greatest. Um, and it, I mean, those figures in cutting in, in as it in shopping um, just you know within the Times Life story, I am was caught by a reference to another story headline Stain Ward Council's family was planning to raise money to pay for security four days ago, and a different a different man from planning um, from the one yes. today. So <clears throat> one does have a sense, you know, it's just just days apart, you have these these news reports on um, on on the risk. And what it is really a risk to is a risk to politics. It's a risk to our political practice, the way we conduct our democratic process. Um, and what happens, of course, is the council is, is, is killed. There's immediately a by-election. Somebody else gets an opportunity uh, for a job and all the goodies and so on. So what one can see the, the, the kind of criminal rationale at work here. Um, uh, and it's, it's, you know, how does one interrupt that? It, it needs to be interrupted quite firmly. Uh, and I guess, uh, I guess you're quite right that, that a sensible option might be to look at uh, maybe devolving that or, or, or refocusing the VIP protection downwards to the level uh, of politicians who, who are most at risk. And it's very clearly certainly in KZN uh, at municipal level. But of course, you know, we have also seen so many abuses of the use of bodyguards. So I, mm. you know, I think a big part of any, exactly, any, any, any appointment is going to be um, ensuring that, you know, you hire people who are competent, mm. not people who are just there to be personal yeah. muscle for, for, for politicians. Because um, I can yeah. very easily see that becoming a, a problem too. Sara, what do you make of all this? I mean, so we, we, as, as Michael was just talking about, the, the competition for political office um, is a big part of why these murders happen uh, and the ineffectiveness of the police in catching people ahead of time. And the, the councillors in, in KZN are complaining that when they get death threats, um, it takes too long for the police to respond with proper protective services. Well, what do you think is the solution here, at least in the short term, to solving this problem? You see, I, th I think the problem, although I mean, I agree with Michael, but I think the problem is this one is the cost theoretically could just be unaffordable. Um, mm. The implementation um, would be problematic. I mean, you're literally looking at probably at, at, at very least one for one bodyguard to counsellor. Um, and the other, you know, I, I mean, I think they're just insurmountable. What perhaps one needs to look at, I mean, I, I, I can't remember, there was a figure in, in, in the article about how many people have been convicted <clears throat> these sorts of crimes. And uh, 62 suspects. Okay, so it's not a huge number, but yeah. to the extent, uh, perhaps, perhaps the uh, media can do the best for us on that, and that is to put this in the sunlight. In other words, why did they kill these people? Who hired them to kill the people? Uh, what were they done doing for? Because the, comp the competition for, for um, municipal positions is theoretically the same or pretty much the same all over the country. 
So one suspects that obviously there's a, an assassination industry in in, uh, in KZN. <clears throat> so, um, but, you know, it's a little bit of the, the big politicians do get out into the open and we form our suitably negative opinions of them. Perhaps if that if that can, information or some of that information can come out into the public domain, it it would create a salutary effect. Let's put it that way, because it's it's way too. Even if it, even if the I think even if the police force were fully competent, it would be a tricky thing to manage. Unless, of course, the rates of convictions went up considerably, mm-hmm. so the risks, the attendant risks, become higher. Definitely. What's interesting, though, is that while most of these were due to political uh, problems, there were also other issues. Um, and one of the ones named here, the, the ones named by Tele were taxi violence, domestic related issues, business competition, traditional leadership competition and family feuds. Um, mm. Some of those, I suspect, are a lot more difficult to solve, actually, than the, <laughs> yes. the political problem. Uh, yeah. But... Yeah. <clears throat> Michael, any final thoughts before we move on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think Sarah makes a good point that um, you know we, we we need to keep this visible, keep it controversial in a sense, uh, keep the public um, officials and politicians' minds on it too. Um, I was trying to trying to find a moment ago, and I can't really not being as tech savvy as a as a, as a younger person maybe but trying to simultaneously find something on the RR website um which was uh, Gareth Fronslin's very good report of probably 2017-2018 on political assassinations that's now you know umpteen years ago a few years ago at least um which he warned this is likely to get worse it's not going to go away on its own um, he looked at all the commissions there, and he sort of established various commissions to look at it and so on. But the the real thing, uh, which underscores Sarah's point, I think, is that it's it's a we've we've allowed ourselves to become a little bit complacent. Um, and the first telltale sign of that is when the media just doesn't cover something. Mm-hmm. Is there's a sense that there's no public interest in it. You know, it's just, it's a bit like um, what happened to AIDS eventually. You know, people just, they kind of knew it was a big problem and it was out of their hands. And so it just kind of drifted away. Uh, that it was affecting millions of people. And I think the similar thing risks, you know, happening with this and, and other topics in South Africa. But that certainly, I would, would have thought, would be a key thing is to keep the public focus on it, keep asking questions. You know what's happened to those commissions? What about their recommendations? What are the, you know? I have to do the police special strategy um, because you know it isn't just affecting those murdered councillors and their and their unfortunate families, but the whole political process, the kinds of people who are going to politics, the people who are not going to politics, perhaps in a way is 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 is, is the bigger the risk. People who are not taking the risk, you know, it's just just too too difficult. And perhaps those are the very people we need. Uh, so yeah. Uh, I think it's a important topic. <clears throat> Definitely. So, all right, let us go on to our next story now. And this is from the city of Tswane, <clears throat> uh, the municipality in which Pretoria falls. And we've had some rocky days with the uh, uh, anti-ANC coalition in the city. Um, they had a lot of infighting, squabbling, there was some drama. But things seem to have sort of calmed down and were working better. Uh, unfortunately, that seems to have fallen apart a bit now. So, as I'm sure you know, if you've watched uh, the show or you've been reading the news, uh, the city of Tuane is in the midst of this terrible strike, illegal strike, where um, numbers of municipal workers are demanding a wage increase of, I think, 6%, uh, whereas the city of Tuane says that they can afford no wage increase at all. 
due to the city's financial situation. Well, um, things were sort of holding steady, it seems, until quite recently, and the DA has come out swinging at Action SA, saying that they have been stabbed in the back by Action SA. Uh, so I'm reading from the DA statement here, quote, without consulting the multi-party coalition, Action SA submitted an urgent motion to the Speaker of Council that seeks to compel the executive mayor to negotiate with the striking workers, as well as for the mayor to consider what it calls legitimate demands put forward by labor unions. These demands include a 600 million in, uh, uh, adding 600 million to the wage bill, paying striking workers who have disrupted services for residents, and reinstating workers who have engaged in assaults and intimidation against Swanee employees. They went on to say that uh, since the official bodies of the unions have distanced themselves from the strike, that in fact this action would essentially be negotiating with what the DA called criminal elements in the city and not genuinely grieved workers. Action SA responded. Um, saying that they've been on an oversight visit to Mamalodi and Shoshunguve townships and said, quote, uh, highlighted how service delivery in townships in the city of Tswane has come to a near standstill with refuse not being collected for weeks and critical repairs to water and electrical infrastructure not taking place and municipal offices intermittently being closed. The oversight visits to the affected township communities reiterates so Action SA has believed that instead of ignoring the concerns of municipal workers, the city should proactively engage with labor unions to find a solution to the current impasse. Sora, uh, what do you make of this story? Well, I think the ASA suffered from a combination of, of naivety, um, panic, and a great dollop of convenient electioneering on this one. Because if you have your... your, your Officials photographed in front of an area of horrible littering. It, you know, the picture speaks a thousand words. It's all words to that effect. Um, now, they also don't understand much about industrial relations, and that is this. When you've had 30 years of a, of a largely ruling party managing a um, public service <coughs> that has been high, com comparatively highly paid, underworked, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm talking in very broad terms, obviously. Um, and there comes a point where the power entirely lies with the public servants and their representative trade unions. And in any industrial relations crisis like this, where everyone on where everyone on the on the um, sorry, when everyone on the coalition has agreed and beyond, even the ANC agreed that no increases could be given. Once you make that decision, you have literally got to be prepared to hang in there. And What's happened is they did dismiss workers, um, and now now that things have got ugly, bad, protracted, the EFF is getting in, surprise, surprise, the, the, and actually decided to go in without consultation and just said, here's the optics, oh, my God, we're not getting service delivery. Guys, you're not getting service delivery because there isn't service delivery, and that's the problem. Oh. You have to weigh up the balance between – the unfortunate situation of putting your constituents in a un very unpleasant situation and breaking the backs of, of, of an uneven power play. And, it just, you know, some Slebrink has, has taken that decision to do that. Um, now, you first of all, if the strikers <clears throat> were unlawful, they claim they were unlawfully dismissed, they should be given the right to appeal. No more and no less. In other words, those, the individual strikers can come to the council and put in an appeal against their dismissal, which may or may not be successful, because obviously one doesn't know in every case what the reason was for the dismissal. 
Um, the other thing is, it's you know, they're demanding pay for the workers. I'm afraid if you go on strike, lawfully or unlawfully, you don't get paid for the time you strike. That is part of the power play. Now, you know, if you can't, if you cave on these things when you've made this bold decision, you just literally not quite going back to square one, but you're virtually going back to square one because you've lost your authority. You you stuck it out there and then you conceded. You can't do that. You have to actually change the balance of power. And heartrending as much as this may sound, and I know there was a, a somebody <clears throat> representing a or some of the communities who, who clearly didn't understand the council system at all and, and really wanted to just have a go at the mayor, really none of these the dynamics are either part of the equation, but they're also just not the way society should run. You do have to regain that power. And there may be different ways of doing it, but in the employment context, the way it's been done is largely the way it has to be done. And the employer at some point, if, if the employer virtually regains a power which it hasn't had for a long time and then loses it because of these a combination of understandable yet very emotive and uh, let's say convenient terms they are going to they're going to be dis the, the employer is going to be disempowered so fast nothing will improve it's very very tough I, it really is very very tough but it, my last point on this is that it's not just about the people in authority being responsible citizens have to be responsible for their actions and in this case the strikers and their trade unions have to be responsible for their actions they contravene the law there are consequences. Full stop. No, I, I really agree with that. And what's really concerning to me is that this caving now seems to me that it would legitimize an awful lot of really terrible stuff that's gone on. So we've seen uh, municipal workers attacked and, and, and killed um, in some circumstances. We've seen vehicles torched. Uh, we've seen all sorts of very nasty intimidation, the kind of stuff we also saw in the Cape Town uh, strike by the taxis and mm. you know there's the, I, I can see more of an argument for saying ahead of time look you know we're not getting services hurting people maybe we should uh, negotiate a bit more or budge a bit but once violence begins to be deployed like this when you begin to see stuff like uh, you know sabotage of electric, electrical infrastructure and stuff like that you're just going to legitimize the most awful way of getting your way if you cave in now um Michael, what do you think of this? Hmm. I absolutely agree. And in fact, um, in case uh, uh, any friend uh, readers and uh, listeners and viewers didn't didn't notice it, just a few days ago, Sarah actually wrote a piece about this, um, the headline, Wielding Power for the People's Benefit. And I think that's the, one of the key things here. It's, uh, as Sarah says, it's, you know, it's optics versus substance. The optics is easy. You might, might get a, some temporary relief. You, people would praise you for settling the strike and so on. But in fact, you, you've gone backwards because you have overlooked what is in effect the public's interest. There's a much, much greater interest that you are the custodian of as the, as the, as the negotiating counsel or the employer. Very difficult, as Sarah says. Um, I certainly wouldn't like to be in, in the shoes of anyone in those, in those positions. But as you say, Nick, we saw very similar dynamics uh, in obviously quite different circumstances here in Cape Town with the taxi strike. Uh, it it does pay to just hang in there, be principled, stick to your guns, make a solid argument, um, acknowledge that there are costs and they are, and some of them are tragic, and that's that is a terrible thing. But there is in fact a greater interest also. 
Um, Sara concludes her piece by making the point that, um, you know, this is where Brink and his, this was actually before ASA stepped in, but this is where Brink and his colleagues' backbones have to stiffen. Um, it, it's, it's difficult. One wouldn't want to be in their position. But the point is, uh, Pretoria Trani is obliged, as Sara writes, to try to secure the power for the benefit of the people it serves. And that really is really the, the, the fundamental bottom line of, of politics, democratic politics, people elected to positions to, to do, you know, to, especially in this country at this time, we've got a, a huge backlog of things that need to be fixed. The only way to fix them is to do it with proper strategies, people who are prepared to work uh, and not to cave into uh, to, to kind of cynical actors. So I think ASA has played this very badly and hopefully the, the voters will see that too. Yeah, there, so I, I think the DA has uh, lodged a complaint with the coalition committee or whatever. So it's possible that this may be resolved. Uh, the parties mm. may be able to negotiate something um, between themselves. Uh, but it is uh, a, a little bit worrying because I think these are the kind of tests when there's actual pressure on that really show whether a coalition like this can work yeah. Um, really yeah. well. <clears throat> um, mm. For me, the worst part of 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 some of the, the, you know, it's unclear whether Action SA does support these demands, but the union's demands that, as Sara said, that people go back to work um, without any consequences, even if they've engaged in some of this illegal behavior. Mm. Uh, and that, mm. that, that just can't be allowed to stand. Um, Sara, any final thoughts on this before we, before we move just on? Just to say that, you know, what this country does need is as much law upheld as possible. The Labor mm. Relations Act of 1995 was drafted put into power by the ANC. They are the rules that apply to every workplace. It doesn't matter which workplace. And the, and the, uh, the bargaining council that the, that's made much of, you know, that they came to a decision that the DA disagrees with, so it's taking on, on review that, in other words, the council said, you must negotiate, you know, you can't have it. That's questionable. That's going on, that's going to court, and as it should do, and hopefully we'll get something meaningful out of that. But the rules are the same. And the rules that apply are the same. And the right to strike, like ev almost every other strike, sorry, every right, comes with qualifications. And the qualifications are usually based on the fact that if that, as soon as that right infringes on other people's rights, it has to be limited. And that comes from someone who's, I'm not an absolutist of free speech, but I'm close. So, you know, it comes back to the, you know, everyone has to take responsibility and yeah. perhaps it's even to say to the, to the, um, to the people who on the, who on the receiving end of this, the, 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 the communities, is there are times in which perhaps, you know, you've got to actually help yourselves a bit because things are, things are not immediately going to get better. It often takes a couple of years before these things settle down. So there's no easy solution to this. But if you don't grab the nettle, it'll, I think you'll just be stung by it if there is such mm. a saying. <laughs> okay, let's move on to our last story. And this is going to the small neighboring country of Swaziland or Eswatini, as it was renamed in 2018. And they're having an election, which uh, I'm sure many people have at least some familiarity with Swaziland for sound a little bit surprising, but today they are casting ballots in a parliamentary election. Unfortunately for the people of Eswatini, this doesn't really mean that much. Swaziland's par uh, parliament is very um, 
weak. It can't really do anything except advise the king on what to do. The king maintains pretty much absolute control of the country. And political parties are entirely banned in Swaziland. Individual candidates can run for seats, but if individuals happen to express, shall we say, anti-monarchical views or uh, encourage reform, they tend to find themselves harassed or thrown out of the country at some point. Uh, two previous members of parliament who had supported pro-democracy movements were jailed and a third has fled the country to South Africa, I believe. Um, a spokesperson for a, uh, an activist group in Swaziland, uh, in, in Eswatini, declared, it's a misnomer to call what's happening in Swaziland elections. Um, there have been protests over the years against the government system in Swaziland, but these generally seem to have not really managed to go anywhere. The South African development community, SADC, has sent some electoral observers um, to have a look at the, uh, the process of the election, but I don't really see the point, considering it doesn't seem to have much of an effect on the politics of the country. It seems almost to me like it's legitimizing something that really shouldn't be taken too seriously. Mm. Um, it's a curious thing, Eswatini, because it is, you know, it's, it is effectively an absolute monarchy, which is a system of government that has been rare pretty much across the world, pretty much across history. Even in like the <laughs> Middle Ages, kings tended to rule with the consent of their nobility. Um, there have been absolute monarchies in Europe, of course, from time to time. Uh, but it's so bizarre that Swaziland maintains this very strange, very alien system of government. I don't know. Michael, what do you make of this? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, it's a tantamount to the ANC tolerating uh, Henry VIII in the neighboring country. Um, it's just, it really is great. And you think, you know, you think of sort of English constitutional development, um, Magna Carta 1290, I think it was, well, 1215, it was initially drawn up and it took most of that century to, I think 1291 was it finally signed, King John. Um, so, you know, there's been a kind of long history in the, certainly in the Anglo, Anglo world of um, kings and monarchs being um, being resisted by, certainly by the, the, the barons and aristocracy and so on, but, and then eventually from 1832 onwards, obviously by the the, the 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 popular person or popular men at that point, uh, the, you know, the ordinary men. But um, so how extraordinary that in twenty twenty three we have we have an absolute monarch in in Eswatini. It's, it's just such a strange strange thing, um, and it's very odd that it's tolerated. I mean, I just find it extraordinary. Um, I see in the in the Reuters story they refer to um, um, Swati's using public money to fund a lavish lifestyle which he shares with his fifteen wives, um, while most of the country is made up of struggling subsistence farmers, um, and it, it, the country is is uh, is blandly described by the U.S. based organization Freedom House as being not free, which uh, yeah. Uh, no question about that. So it is, is rather odd that they've got an election that they, you know, this um, this pretense at, um, at, at some kind of popular direction or directing of, of politics when clearly that's not uh, that's not in play. So a bit tragic actually, and a bit a bit quaint. Yeah, tragic for the people who are subjects. I'm sure. So I mean, I'm just trying to think of the absolute monarchies that exist in the world today. Um, the Gulf states, uh, Oman, Saudi Arabia, effectively. Um, 
that's really about it, actually, I think. Uh, Sarah, what role should South Africa be playing yeah. with regards to democracy yeah. in, in Swaziland? Do you want to know what role they should be playing or what role we will be playing? And the answer is we will be playing nothing, um, judging by <laughs> more on the poser's feelings about interfering in other people's despotic countries. Um, I think this, the, tra the real tragedy of Swaziland, you've got a, a very poor country. Uh, it's kind of poor, it's landlocked, it's homogenous. So you don't have, ironically, competing sort of tribal interests to sort of mm. keep people on their toes. Um, it's actually, it's not really a country. It actually operates like a, not, a, not even a province. It operates like a tribal like almost like, if want to a better expression, a homeland. I can't quite think of the right word I'm looking for. In other words, there is no impetus, there's no pressure on it to change, and the, because there's nothing around it or within it to challenge the authority. And unfortunately, because it's poor and destitute, globally it's irrelevant. You know, it's not. It's probably I don't know. Is it even the size of Israel? Um, but you know. Different, different countries get different attention, and that's largely for a whole lot of reasons, but one of which is about what a country offers to the rest of the world. And Swaziland mm. just, isn't, just, just isn't there. I mean, it's, 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 it's very tragic. I think, I think Andre is correct in his, um, in his comment, is that ultimately the, the Swazi people will probably just not take more of this after he goes. The problem is, how do people people are going to have are going to live have to live with it because those who have opposed yeah. it have really um, suffered as a result. Um, it's, it's sadly, it's unimportance is the problem in global terms. Yes. Mm. Um, interestingly, uh, because of its perhaps because of its the fact that it's a monarchy, um, it is I believe the only country in Africa which has diplomatic relations with Taiwan and not with China. <laughs> which bad. makes it very, very unusual, um, you know. Which is a view I, I, I have some sympathy for, but uh, it's probably not great for the country's economic development. Anyway, um, that's all the time we had for today's show. Thank you very much for watching. We hope that you found it interesting, and we will be back next week with the Daily French Show. Cheers, everyone.